and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by Mark Mason, a Spectator regular and master of trivia, whose new book is, well, even more brilliantly trivial than many of his previous ones. (laughs) It's called The Book of Seconds, and Mark was our second choice for this podcast, so it's absolutely appropriate we should have him. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a book about all the different people and things that come second. Is that right? What on earth would make you want to do that? My editor, really. I was sitting there having lunch with my editor one day and we were talking about Roger Bannister. This was a couple of years ago before Bannister died. And I found myself saying, well, who was the second man to run a four-minute mile? And don't you feel sorry for the guy because no one's ever heard of him. And then Alan had said he'd sort of had that idea for a book before, so we ended up doing it. And it's all those people. The answer to that one, by the way, is John Landy, who was an Australian guy, fantastic athlete. And... As with a lot of uh, of the ones in the book, it's it's really luck, you know. Bannister and he were both knocking right up against four minutes, and it was which way, whichever one happened to be on a track first and do it. And Bannister only beat him by three weeks. And Bannister only knocked a point four of a second off. He did 359.6. Landy came along and did 357 point something. You know, he absolutely took a couple of seconds off it. And that was the world record for three years, never mind three weeks. And it's a fascinating book. And yeah, and did, I mean... Well, so in some, some sense, one thinks, is this book a sort of act of redress, all these poor people who vanished into history? Yeah. I mean, did a lot of the, the seconds that you describe in your book, and you know, sporting seconds and musical seconds and so forth, I mean, were these people who spent the rest of their lives being sort of embittered? Because a lot of the nature of it is, is these are records, you know, these are things that are... Yeah, absolutely. Some of them were embittered. Some of them, I think, enjoyed it. And one of the ones, once I'd had the banister idea, the one, as soon as I thought of Apollo 12... That was the one that told me I really wanted to do this book because I could do a whole book on Apollo 12. I don't think there has actually been a book on Apollo 12. There have been lots of books on Apollo 11. This is what, exactly and my Apollo point. Apollo 12 was? Apollo 12 was the second mission to land on the moon, obviously, because Apollo 11 was the first. Neil and Buzz, and that just was massive. And I'd... I'd You've got great a... detail on that, actually, just briefly. Neil and Buzz, that Neil wasn't photographed on the moon yeah. because he... Carried the ca- and that was a cock-up, He it? had the camera the whole time. Yeah, a lot of it is just them messing things up. Yeah, he had the camera. They were only on the surface for about two and a half hours. And Neil Armstrong had the camera for the whole time. So there are lots of pictures of Buzz Aldrin. Forgot at any point to give the camera to Buzz and say, take one of Do me. Do you think they were just too excited? They were just like, woo, we're on the <laughs> I think most people did have that reaction, yeah. The, the th- oh, the th- just finish off the thing about Neil Armstrong. There is actually a photo of him on the moon because he got one where he's close enough to Buzz Aldrin that he's reflected in Buzz Aldrin's visor. So you can see him there holding the camera. So, But there wasn't actually one taken specifically of him. But it's funny to say the woo thing, because Pete Conrad, who was half of Apollo 12, Pete Conrad and Alan Bean were Apollo 12. And I interviewed Alan Bean for The Spectator, actually, a few years ago when he turned 80. And like I said, I'd always been obsessed with him and wanted to get him sort of more recognition. And he was happy to do it. And he became quite well known as an artist later on in life. He did a lot of of lunar paintings, but other paintings as well. Pete Conrad ended up in the 1970s, a few years after he'd been to the moon, doing an advert for American Express. American Express were running this campaign called You Don't Know Me But... And it was people who were famous, but you wouldn't recognise their face. So I think the first one was Mel Blanc, who did the voice for Bugs Bunny. Yeah, of course. And Pete Conrad was in it, and his line in the advert was, you don't know me, do you? I was just the third guy to walk on the moon. (laughs) And he said he became more famous from doing the American Express campaign than he ever had for walking on the moon. But I think he was one of the ones, to answer your original question, who was actually quite relaxed, because I think Neil and Buzz took the pressure off him, and he could just get on with the rest of his life. And then if people did find out 
you know, 10 minutes into the conversation who he was, they'd say, oh, wow. And of course, the inevitable question is, and it's a stupid question, but if you or I were with him, it's the question we'd ask, what was it like to walk on the moon? And he got a super, really loved it. And then move the conversation on. Because obviously you don't, and it ruined the rest of Neil Armstrong's life, you know, to some extent. He was, the pressure of being the first can be a, a terrible thing as well as a, a great thing. And obviously having blown his line. <laughs> and obviously having blown it, absolutely. And also I got the chance to put in the book Pete Conrad's first line. Because in the run-up to Apollo 12, he and Alan Bean were being interviewed by an Italian journalist. And she said to them, she'd refused to believe that NASA hadn't scripted Neil Armstrong's line for him. And, and Pete Conrad says, no, we can say what we want. You know, there's, there's no NASA telling us what to do. She said, I don't believe you. Okay, give me your first line now, because he knows at this point he's going to walk on the moon in a few months. She said, tell me what you're going to say. So he thought up something on the spot, which was because he was five foot six, he was quite short. I think he said, whoopee, that may have been a small step for Neil, but it was a big one for me, because he had further yeah. to jump down from the bottom <laughs> of the ladder. And she bet him $500, which in 1969 was quite a lot of money. And that's absolutely what he said. Go and have a look on the tapes. That's what he said when he jumped down onto Lunar Service. And he never got his money. She never paid him. Whoa. <laughs> that's a very, really interstellar Welsher. <laughs> now, there are various kind of apocryphal ideas about what, you know, coming second. I mean, you can see people shouting, silver, silver, at people as they're, you know, yeah. roaring past them. Yeah. First the worst, second the best, third the one with the hairy, hairy chest. chest. Where does that come from? That comes from somewhere I found, a quote I found on the internet, but it did give me the, um, it's apparently it's an old saying, I think it might be American, but it did give me the chance to do second children, people who were second children yeah. and became successful. Bill Gates is a second child. And the one I didn't know about, I knew, I knew quite a lot about Richard Nixon. I'm a sort of Watergate nut as well as an Apollo nut. Anything that was happening in America in the late 60s, early 70s, you know. And... What I didn't know about Richard Nixon was he was named after Richard the Lionheart. He and I think there was what he had something like five brothers and four of them, including Nixon, including Richard Nixon, were named after English kings. So ever since then, when I've, I've seen, you know, footage of Nixon, I think Richard the Lionheart. Can you imagine two more different people? And no. One was named <laughs> after the other. And Cain and Abel, what was the birth order there? Cain was first, was he? Or was Abel first? Oh, God knows. No, I missed that one. Thanks. One of them so had a hairy chest, be, didn't they? Yeah. The second. <laughs> oh, They're they always crop up. Man. They always yeah. crop up in the old quiz question, which is another spectator regular, Marcus Berkman. I've, I've heard him use this question and other people as well. I'm sure it was Marcus that was first, in case you're listening, Marcus. I'm sure you wouldn't have nicked anyone else's question. Who, in terms of, it depends how you phrase it, but in terms of percentage of the world's population wiped out in a single act of violence, which was the worst ever? So people start thinking Hiroshima or something or trying to work it out. And it was Cain killing Abel because at that point he oh. killed 25% of the world's population. <laughs> <laughs> so although I forgot to put it in the book, I'll put it in the second edition uh-huh, of the set of Book of Seconds and I shall add that one in. Yeah, that's obviously the one to wait for, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> now, one of the most famous seconds you put, put out, you know, really well-known second is Roger Falcon Scott. Ah, yes. Robert Fulton Scott was, of course, the second, Roger, second man Robert to get, the, get to the South Pole. And I didn't want, you know, I didn't want to put in the really well-known seconds because there have been lots of books about that. Or, you know, races where somebody won and somebody lost and him and Amundsen was obviously the big race. But the detail I came across and what persuaded me to put it in was, you know, I'd just read a couple of books. I'd read Scott, a biography of Scott and another book about it. And nowhere in either of those books had this detail that I chanced across 
put, um, come up, so I put it in, was that Amundsen left a letter at the South Pole. I hadn't. That was new on me as yeah. well. That's remarkable. And it's just as if you don't feel sorry enough for Scott already. He gets to the South Pole. That famous quote about our hearts sank or whatever he said when they saw the remains of where Amundsen had been. And then they find a letter that Amundsen has left to say, in effect, look, it's so-and-so date. I got here first. If anybody finds this letter and I don't make it back alive, because although he got there first, Amundsen, and there's still the risk he could die on the return journey, as happened with Scott... If I die on my return journey, Amundsen says in the letter, could somebody please tell the King of Norway that I was the first? So not only has Scott got there, realised he's lost, he's also found this that means that if it had been the other way around, if Amundsen had died and Scott had got back alive, he would have had to go to the King of Norway and underline that he'd been second. So, that you know, that letter was just, uh, as, as we say... he might have died deliberately on the way back. I know, to, yeah, just uh, Amazon. To, to rub it in a bit, yeah. There's also a sort of poignant musical second that I, had, I hadn't really clocked, but that a song very beloved to me as a teenager, Ultravox's Vienna, was kept off the top spot by Shut Up, You Face. Yes. It's, it's, it's well known. I think it was the best-selling record of 1981. No, I'm mixing the two things up. Tainted Love was the best-selling record of 1981. But yeah, Vienna was in 1981, got to number two and was kept off the top. I think originally, the first week it was kept off number one by one of John Lennon's singles, which is early 1981. So Lennon's only been dead for a few months and they're releasing Lennon's stuff and he keeps getting to number one. But actually, yeah, Shut Up Your Face, which is still the best-selling Australian-produced single ever. None of NXS's or any of the big Australian bands have sold as many as Shut Up Your Face by Joe Dolce, who was this, for those of you mercifully young enough never to have heard the song, was this novelty act, this Australian who called himself uh, this cod Italian, Shut Up Your Face. It even sold outsold I Came From Land Down Under. Absolutely, yeah. That other yeah. great Australian no, novelty record. Vegemite, yes. Every time I see a jar of Vegemite, I think of that song. But the the thing about, the getting, I've done a whole section of, of songs that got to number two. I think Wonderwall got to number two and was kept off the top by a fairly, you know, crappy record. Not quite as crappy as Shut Up Your Face. But Lennon himself, he was shot on the 8th of December. They then released, I think it was Imagine, it was one of his big singles. They released that, it goes straight to number one, inevitably. But you've still got like two or three weeks before it's the Christmas chart, so who's going to be the Christmas number one? In those two or three weeks, despite the outpouring of grief around the world for John Lennon, that's still enough time for Imagine, or whatever the single was, to fall off the number one spot. And There's No One Quite Like Grandma by the St. Winifred's Girls School Choir gets to number one. So John Lennon was kept off the top by a bunch of girls from a school. Having a confess, I like that song a bit more than Imagine. Oh, yeah, I agreed. Imagine is a terrible song. But that's quite terrible. No, you don't quite like it. When it was, you know who played piano on that, by the way? Clive Dunn? <laughs> Rick Wakeman. Rick Wakeman, goodness me. What a broad virtuoso he is. And actually, there's, the other thing is lots of people become famous for the second band they're in, don't they? I suppose so, yeah. I, I should have put... Again, you're giving me great ideas for the second edition. Oh, yeah. I should make some notes. But yeah, they do. There's... Um, there's also all the people that weren't, you know, the Pete Best and all the ones that didn't quite make it into the big bands. But yeah, the, the, the musical one that I didn't know until I looked it up, the second best-selling album ever. Everyone is going to know that the best-selling album ever is Thriller. 
you know, it's the most famous album ever, probably. Uh, certainly the best selling ever, 65 million. What came second, with, or what still comes second, with 50 million sales is Back in Black by ACDC, who deliberately keep themselves under the radar. You know, they're deli- Brian Johnson famously keeps his cap pulled down and, and uh, you know, they're just happy to sell tens of millions of records. And have they're one of those fan bases where if you like ACDC, you'd worship them. Well, there was a, the, and the there rest is, of the world doesn't isn't really aware of them. Well, know? there is remarkable detail in your book though that this ACDC had a role in Black Hawk Down in the story yes. of the yeah the bell. It's at the beginning of Hell's Bells, the first album on the track, the first track on the album. Incidentally, that bell that's ringing out was made specially for them. They wanted to record... They had a bell cast. They had a bell cast. It's a rock and roll band in the 1980s, Sam. You know, they, they, got, do, what they, they like, yeah. do what they like. Build Stonehenge, you know. That. And they, <laughs> thankfully, they, this band got it to the right scale. They had a one-ton bell made. Because the one that they wanted to record is called the Denison Bell. It's in the War Memorial Tower in Loughborough. I love the fact that it's oh, Loughborough. ACDC sort of... Timpanologists. No, they're like, that's the bell we wanted. It's in Loughborough. Again, rock stars in the 1980s. They've heard that one bell. You know, nothing else after that is going to be good enough. So they go, they send, you know, the recording unit there to record it. And by definition, you can only record the bell when the bell goes off. But every time the bell does go off, all the pigeons that are nestling on the tower fly off, fluttering, completely ruin the recording. So, you know, they had their... It's the only possible solution if you're a rock band in that era is to have your own bell made by the same foundry that cast the Denison Bell, who's also the same foundry that did Great Paul in St Paul's. And then they took it on tour for a few years and they had this one-ton bell hanging off the rigging on the stage. One night... God, it makes the Deep Purple Barrel organ look like hand I know, it, am- it? amateurs, they're just not trying. Until one night it came off its rope and nearly killed Angus Young, so they <laughs> decided to retire it. But, yes, you know, to go back to what you were saying about... You got into that because you... Oh, oh the Black Hawk Down thing, yeah. Mogadishu, because it's a kind of poignant yeah. story. One of the American pilots who was captured was a massive ACDC fan. And I think it was Hell's... It was either Hell's Bells or Back in Black. It was one of those two. They're both on the album. And they'd, he'd been taken to... had been held by the Somalis somewhere in Mogadishu, but they didn't know where. And... They knew sort of roughly, had a rough idea of the area. So his mate strapped huge speakers to the runners on a helicopter underneath his helicopter and blasted out that song. Let's say it's Hell's Bells. They blasted out. They flew over where he was. And so he could hear it. And he, he tells the story and says, I'm lying there thinking I'm going to die here. This He's got a broken arm, broken ribs, the lot. You know, and they've just been left in this room. And he hears the beginning of Hell's Bells and this helicopter going overhead. And his mates play the song and he manages to drag himself with his broken limbs and whatever, gets some sort of shirt or something he can wave out of the window, and he's waving it out of the window so they can see him. And then they say, so they know where he is, and they say, right, we're going to go away now, but we're coming back, and we're not going to leave without you. And they fly away, and that's how they rescued him. Oh, that kind of brings a tear to your eye. I know. It's a tear. I've heard Brian Johnson tell the story as well. It brings a tear to his eye when he tells it, yeah. Is there anything intrinsic, do you think, about the experience of being second? I mean... Our second children—is there a psychological profile that people apply to second children? Is there a? I mean, no. I mean, is that's, there any, any way you can generalise about all this? You can, but then of course you can find any number of examples that prove exactly the opposite. So, the beauty of being the um, what did you call me? Something of trivia at the beginning, you know, the master, the master, king, master the, I, I can't remember. Someone at the publisher trivia, decided maybe. to put king of trivia on the 
on the cover for this book. I do apologise for that. That was someone at the publishers, that wasn't me. But I'll take Master of Trivia from you. Well, Michael Jackson refused to let MTV play his records unless they, unless they called him the king. king of pop uh, at least three times a day. So you could do the same what thing. A, what a delightful man Michael Jackson was, yeah. <laughs> no, the Master of Trivia. I, the beauty of writing books like this is that I don't have to come up with any of the theorising. That You know, I'm not Malcolm Gladwell or someone who has to come up with all the info and then find a theory that fits it. No, I think... You know, you, in terms of the children thing, yeah, you could find any number of examples. I think there is a slightly deeper thing, like I said, with Pete Conrad. Some people were relieved. But then you can also find the example where someone really did suffer for for what they did. One of the other athletics ones was a guy called Peter Norman, who came second in the 200 metres final at the 1968 Olympics. And... You know, think, fair enough. As you said earlier, silver, silver. It's not, you know, when you see those athletes that go around doing things, talks at school, and it's so-and-so Olympic silver medalist. You just think, oh, you're not gold. But the thing about this silver one was that the guy who got the gold and the guy who got the bronze were John Carlos and Tommy Smith, who were the two black athletes who, who did, did the, the black, black power salute yeah. on, the, on the podium. And Peter Norman stuck up for them and said... You know, he, he didn't raise the fist himself. Obviously, that would have been silly for him to do the Black Power salute. He's a white Australian athlete. But he did. He was the one that had the idea. Because, and I love the way these things are always, there's a slight element of cock-up in even the most grand, dramatic story. They were both meant to raise, the Black Power salute is you raise your right fist. And they were both meant to put a, a right glove on and raise their right fist. One of them forgot his pair of gloves. <laughs> So on the way out to the podium, they told Peter Normal, he sort of realised what they were going to do. And he said, yeah, all power to you. And, and, uh, and he didn't raise the fist, but he did wear a little badge, a little black power badge that someone else was wearing. And he said, give me that, I'll wear that for you and publicly express solidarity for them. And also was the one that had the idea, well, why don't you just, you've got one pair of gloves between you. One of you do the right fist and one of you do the left fist, <laughs> which is the only reason. If you look carefully at the photo, John Carlos is raising his left fist instead of his right fist, but no one ever notices that. But the indignities that the guy had to suffer towards, you know, for the rest of his life, really, he suffered. Back in Australia in the 1960s, you know, race relations weren't that great and uh, to, with a lot of people. He got a lot of flack for sticking up for these two black American guys. What are you doing sticking up for them? And they, when he died about 10 years ago, they both flew over from America to go to his funeral. And they said he didn't raise a fist, but he sure lent, lent a hand or something like that. You know, they, and he suffered for the rest of his life. And the final indignity is that there's now a statue at San Jose State University where the two of them studied, and they're both on the podium. But the bit where Peter Norman should be on the silver medal is the bit that's left, but there's no statue of him. That's where you stand to have your photo taken with the other two. Oh, so he's, he's written out even after his death. Well, I don't know, it's quite nice, nice to be the guy where, who everybody... You're a representative of everybody, aren't you? You know, people... Yes, you could say that. Yes, yeah. he is every man. We, are, he, we he all come second in life at some point. Yeah. We do. I was going to say also there's... For somebody like me who's involved in the book world, there's a very shaming passage in your book where you say, here are all the most famous first lines in history. <laughs> Can you remember the second lines? <laughs> all these novels, you know, Call Me Ishmael, yeah. All Happy Families Are Alike, etc., etc. Yeah. Can you recite the second line of Anna Karenina? Uh, <laughs> there was one of the ones that we didn't get permission for, so we had to take one out. I think No, it wasn't Anna Karenina. No, no, Anna we didn't have to ask for permission for it. No, there was... Oh, I can't remember. I'm not going to shame Orwell, the estate maybe? who turned us down. No, no. Orwell's definitely in there. Got permission to do the second line of 1984. Yeah. I think that is the most famous first line. It's the one that you always get in quizzes. Was well, a bright, cold, the bright day, cold day in April yeah. and the clocks were striking 13. The second line of that, not only is it sort of intriguing that we never remember the second line, there's also a beautiful little fact about it. 
The second line relates to Winston Smith nuzzling his chin against his chest or whatever and, and goes into, Vic- into the building, into Victory yeah. Mansions, which is the, the block of flats where he lives, which was based on Langford Court, which is the block of flats in St. John's Wood, where George Orwell lived when he was living in London, when he was working at the BBC. And that block of flats in St. John's Wood, were it not for the trees on the right-hand side of the picture on the cover of Abbey Road by the Beatles, you would be able to see it. So Winston Smith's block of flats is on the cover of Abbey Road, albeit hidden behind some leaves. Well, that's a good thought, perhaps, to end on. Actually, no, I have one, one aphorism I think we should leave you with, which is, the early bird catches the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. <laughs> Mark Mason, thank you very much. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.